Amen. Amen. Well, hey, good morning. Welcome to Grace City. If I hadn't had a chance to meet you yet, my name is David. I'm the teaching pastor here. Thank you so much for being here, being a part of our community this morning. Hey, so if you want to, go ahead and turn to Exodus chapter 16. That's going to be our primary text this morning, Exodus chapter 16. And in Exodus, we see that God's people are grumbling against the Lord. It is a full-on gripe fest. It is gloom, despair, agony on me, deep, dark depression, excessive misery. Like that is the tone of the, of the passage of, of the chapter. And uh, they're, just, they're just griping. Now, just over a month ago, they had been suffering as slaves in Egypt. So you'd think that'd be considerably worse, right? They had, just over a month ago, they were suffering as slaves. They had to work 365 days a year. They had to, sit, had to hit a certain amount of production quotas. And if they didn't, uh, they'd be punished for it. And now they're free. And they're on the way to the promised land. And God has told them it's a land flowing with milk and with honey. I mean, they're going to be in a land all their own, not subject to anybody else's uh, abuse or oppression. They will be free in the promised land. Now, they're not there yet. They are on their way. And, and to, be, to be fair, it is a hard journey. It's through the desert. Um, but still, they're headed to the promised land. Like, I mean, you, like, just keep the big picture in mind and just deal with whatever hardship, right? To me, it almost feels like, you know, the kid, like, complaining in the backseat on the way to Disney World. It's like, dude, just deal with it. We're gonna, it's going to be awesome soon. And, like, you would think they'd just keep that big picture in mind as they're on their way there, but they don't. They just get overwhelmed with their present situation and with their present circumstances. And I I don't want to beat up on them too bad because Exodus 16 also lets us know that they're hungry, that they are starving from lack of food from the journey. And just like us, you know, when you and I, when we get hungry, maybe we get a little bit angry. Uh, Snickers tells us we're not ourselves when we're hungry, right? And so like when that happens, that's happened for the Israelites, okay? They're they're feeling that pain uh, in their stomach. Their actions are driven by that empty stomach, by the craving and the hunger that they feel. And when they feel that hunger... Right when they when they when they sense the scarcity of food in the desert, the scarcity of resources, the scarcity of provision. When they feel that, when they sense that scarcity of all those things, they begin to doubt and question the plan of the Lord. They begin to doubt the goodness of the Lord, and they begin to doubt whether or not they were right to follow Him in, in the first place. You see, when there's a sense of scarcity that takes root in the soul. It creates an appetite that consumes the soul and can rob it of joy, of hope, of confidence, of boldness and assurance. They felt it with food. We can feel, a fo- we can feel it with food, we can feel it with finances, but we can feel it with other intangibles as well. When maybe we feel as though there's a scarcity of love or scarcity of grace or scarcity of compassion or a a scarcity of mercy, when we feel like those are in short supply in our lives and the relationships with those around us, maybe in our relationship with the Lord, when we feel like those are scarce, it can quickly turn us all toxic, untrusting, jaded, a place of bitterness rather than a place of blessing. I think whenever you see someone uh, speaking out in, in, in hatred or shouting down someone or speaking out in, in fear or in animosity, I think a lot of times that is someone that is operating from a place of scarcity. There's a limited amount of good. There's a limited amount of this. And so I have to claim what's mine. I have to lay claim to it, whatever. This sense of scarcity can lead to all sorts of uh, bitterness, pettiness, uh, racism, classism, all sorts of things. You can trace it back to a sense of scarcity in the soul. There's a limited amount of this. I have to get it for me. And it can turn a soul toxic. And we see in Exodus 16 that that's 
the situation of the Israelites. I don't think they're full-blown like toxic soul yet, but they are on their way. They're feeling this scarcity. And it's while they're in that situation that God responds. So hopefully you've made your way to the text. Let's grab the first three verses. Exodus chapter 16, verse 1. The whole Israelite community set out from Ilam and came to the desert of Sin, which is between Ilam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food that we wanted. But you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. You can hear the complaint, right? You know, I kind of hammed it up a little bit, but you can hear kind of what they're feeling. You can hear they're, they're so hungry, they're so famished, if only we had died back in Egypt. You know, we had food there to eat, but if only God had, had killed us then. It feels a bit emo, right? It feels a bit dramatic to me. It feels a little bit over the top that they're, that they're going, uh, that, that they're putting these claims before the Lord in this way. I mean, they've just been prevalent for about a month and a half now. It, and it just feels incredibly forgetful. It feels also just incredibly ungrateful. And just both of these, like they've forgotten how bad it was in slavery that made them cry out to the Lord for deliverance in the first place. They've forgotten all the miracles that God did for them to to free them, that miraculously provided for their escape. In chapter 15, if you, if you were part of the, uh, were reading the gospel project readings that were assigned this past week and that, that Matt referenced earlier, in chapter 15, we saw that God's already miraculously provided water for them in the desert. Uh, it, it came out of the rock in the middle of the desert. God miraculously provided for this. So if he can do that with water, surely he can do this for them for food again, right? And so it just shows the forgetfulness that they had. Uh, again, I think there's probably some un gratefulness and a lack of gratitude in this as well. There's a lack of, I'm, I'm sorry, there's like, there's, it's just all happened. You're my hugs, hugs. We're in the same community group and this is like the fourth time this has happened and that's why I'm laughing. There's no way I would single out anybody else in a sermon. And so if you're here and you're like, this is my first time and you just singled out somebody in a message, I'm never coming back. I'm sorry. So much love. Patriots are going to lose today too. So, uh, but, uh, but anyways, where are we? Um, grumbling something. That was, yeah. So, okay, let's just get back into it. Let's go. Um, uh, where are we? What are we talking about? They were forgetful. I'm forgetful right now. Okay. Uh, they're for, uh, just uh, shows uh, a lack of gratitude and, and just how forgetful they were, how they've seen God work, how they've seen God move, how they've seen uh, God work on their behalf. I, I think all that also speaks to that maybe Maybe it wasn't so much forgetfulness as, okay, God's done this. He's worked this way. We saw him do all these miracles. He's provided water from the, from the, from the rock. Maybe he won't do it again. Maybe it reveals a belief that somehow God's limited in how he'll work, limited in how he'll move, limited in, in what he will do on their behalf. Maybe it's a combination of all of it. But in Exodus 16, they're grumbling and they're complaining against the Lord. And yet God decides to meet them in their grumbling, to meet them in their griping. Look at the Lord's response, verse four. Then the Lord said to Moses, I'll rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day, they're to prepare what they bring in. And that is to be twice as much as they gather on the other days. So God tells them, I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to meet your needs. And, And when he does, he gives them an opportunity to trust. 
He gives them an opportunity to practice their trust, to practice their obedience in the plan, to practice their obedience in the instructions of the Lord. They're going to have to trust that, the God, that God will provide each and every single day. And then also trust that at the end of the week is going to provide twice as much for the Sabbath day. And so what God gives to them, touch this, what God gives to them is a daily discipline in which they can behold the glory of the Lord. A daily opportunity for them to watch and see how God is working, how God is moving. A daily opportunity for them to behold the glory and the provision of the Lord. And if they miss that, Moses and Aaron help them see that that's the occasion. Verse 6. So Moses and Aaron said to all the Israelites, In the evening you will know that it was the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. And in the morning you will see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we that you should grumble against us? Moses also said, you will know that it was the Lord when he gives you meat to eat in the evening and all the bread you want in the morning, because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we? You are not grumbling against us, but against the Lord. So Moses tells him, look, you're going to see this in the evening. You're going to see this in the morning. And with it, you will know that the Lord is providing. You will see and behold the glory of the Lord as you eat meat, as you eat the bread. And, and what he also does is not only is he drawing their attention to the glory of the miracle, he's also drawing their attention to the glory of God's kindness, that he would respond in this way, right? Because they're all grumbling. And, you know, when, when, when the Lord said to Moses, I'll rain down bread from heaven, like we might have thought, God's going to rain down fire and brimstone. Like, you're getting a bad attitude with me? Like, I'm going to judge. But no, that's not how God responds. I'll rain down bread from heaven. Moses is, is like, look, you were grumbling against him. You, you, you thought you were grumbling to us. Who are we? You were, your complaints were against the Lord. You were, you were finding fault in him. You were griping against him. And yet God heard this and he's still responding. He's still replying in grace. He's still replying in kindness. In kindness. And so what it is then is every single morning, it's a daily reminder of the favor that God has given to them that they did not earn, that they did not merit. The food is a physical daily provision of God's grace and a daily opportunity for the people to trust in that grace and a daily opportunity for the people to obey the Lord's instructions. So let's see how God honors this promise and how the people responds. We're going to pick it back up in verse 13. Uh, We're going to read through 25, so it's a bit of a read, uh, so hang with me on the text. Uh, That evening quail came and covered the camp, and in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the dew was gone, thin flakes like frost, uh, thin flakes like frost on the, did anybody just hear frosted flakes? That's the first time, first time I've, I've heard that. I'm sure some youth pastors made that joke before. But uh, when the dew was gone, thin, uh, thin flakes, now I'm going to say it second service, and I don't because it's really not that noteworthy. Uh, when the dew was gone, thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. When the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, what is it? For they did not know what it was. Have you ever heard, you know, manna and quail? Manna literally means what is it? They just didn't have a word. So they're like, all right, it's, we're going to call it what is it? And so uh, that, that's where it is. Uh, Moses said to them, it is the bread the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Everyone is to gather as much as they need. Take an omer for each person you have in your tent. The Israelites did as they were told. Some gathered much, some little. And when they measured it by the omer, the one who gathered much did not have too much. And the one who gathered little did not have too little. Everyone had gathered just as much as they needed. Then Moses said to them, no one is to keep any of it until morning. However, some of them paid no attention to Moses. They kept part of it until morning, but it was full of maggots and began to smell. So Moses was angry with them. Each morning, everyone gathered as much as they needed. And when the sun grew hot, it melted away. 
On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much, two omers for each person, and the leaders of the community came and reported this to Moses. He said to them, this is what the Lord commanded. Tomorrow is to be a day of Sabbath rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. So bake what you want to bake and boil what you want to boil. Save whatever's left and keep it until morning. So they saved it until morning as Moses commanded, and it did not stink or get maggots in it. Eat it today, Moses said, because today is a Sabbath to the Lord. You will not find any of it on the ground today. Six days you are to gather, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will not be any. So quail falls from heaven, bread, uh, bread uh, so quails, quails falls to the ground, manna from, uh, manna or the bread from heaven falls like dew. God miraculously sets the table for the Israelites. He honors the promise. He provides for them. He gives this daily provision to them. And for the most part, people followed the instructions. You know, it said those that, that gathered much, those that gathered little, both had what they needed. And they both had what they needed. How is that possible? Because the Lord's the one providing for it. He's providing for them. He knows their need better than they do. So when they go and they gather, they have exactly what they need. But we also see that there are a few that tried to make the daily provision carry over. They tried to make what they gathered today carry over to the next. And it had the maggots, it, had the, it started to stink and, and whatnot. And so with that, you see that there are some in the camp that are still, still felt that scarcity in their lives. That, that, that they felt that, felt that scarcity in their lives to where they ignored the commands. Maybe out of fear that it wouldn't be there the next morning. Maybe out of fear that this provision is not going to be there tomorrow. Maybe it's out of greediness of just wanting more. But scarcity in their soul drives a lack of trust and disobedience to the plans of the Lord. But every single day, God delivers on his promises. Every single day for, their, for the duration of their journey, which will take 40 years. We'll get to that portion of the story in the weeks to come. For 40 years, God daily provides food for their journey. It's a daily provision of grace that sustains, gives life, and gives them hope for their journey. One of the coolest miracles to me that we see in the Old Testament, this provision every day of being able to get up and go and see and behold the glory of the Lord, the kindness of the Lord, the provision of the Lord, day in, day out, and every single night as well. In John chapter 6, verse 30 through 35, a crowd has tracked down Jesus. Uh, they've, they've tracked him down because they have some questions for him. Uh, Jesus has just miraculously fed the masses himself. He's just fed the 5,000 with just a few loaves of bread and a few fish. And now they're coming back to Jesus to ask questions about that experience and, and maybe looking to experience another miracle or two. And when they catch up to Jesus, one of the questions that they ask him is, is about doing the work of the Lord. And Jesus replies and it says that the work of the Lord is to believe in the one whom he has sent. He said, you want to do the work of God, you believe in the one whom God has sent. And the people want to do that. They're like, okay, we want to. So how do we know who is the one that God has sent? What sign will you show us if it's you that we can know you're the one whom the Lord has sent, that we can believe in you? And in John chapter 6, verse 30, they ask this question before Jesus. And I want you to see how they phrase their question and how Jesus replies. It'll be on the screens. It says this. So they asked him, what sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread and heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, very truly, I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. 
Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. So they're asking for the son, like that's kind of how he knew to believe Moses. And Jesus is like, look, let's, you know, it wasn't Moses that gave the bread, it was God the Father. And the bread that God gives, it gives life to the world. It gives life to the world. It's such a statement of hope, such a statement of joy, such a statement of assurance and confidence. Look, this is something that God is giving that's going to give life to the world. And, and that, that's such of a hope-filled statement, such, of a far, such a far-reaching promise that should drive out feelings of scarcity, right? It should drive out uh, these notions of somehow that it's limited. But I, I think in 34, you can kind of hear that a little bit when the people are like, always give us this bread. Like, don't let it run out. Always give this to us. Don't let this go away. Always give this back. You know, always give this to us. But what does Jesus reply? He says, no, no, he's speaking about himself. I am the bread of life. If you come to me, you will never go hungry. You will never be thirsty. Why? Because there's no cap on what Christ is doing in our life. He gives grace, he gives mercy, he gives love, hope, redemption. There's no limit on it. It's unlimited food for the soul to where the soul does not have to feel the pressures and the fears of scarcity, but trust in that God's provision will be there each and every single day. Because maybe you've heard it said like this before. Maybe, maybe, maybe this is where you are this morning and maybe you were having these thoughts as we're talking about it. Like you've, you've heard that God is loving, and, and you think, okay, I know that God is loving. I know he loves um, all these other people. I know he loves that group or, or, that, or that type of a person. But I don't know if there's any way he could love me. Because you're, you're thinking through actions that you've taken, words that you've said to, to loved ones, maybe, expressions that, uh, maybe opinions you've expressed about him or about the church. And so you're thinking, there's no way after what I've said, what I've expressed, what I've done, how God could possibly love me. And so maybe you've heard the gospel, you've heard the truth of what Christ has done on the cross and how he makes a way for the forgiveness of our sins. And when we come to him in faith, that work is applied to us. And so you've heard that and maybe you don't even doubt it. Like that's true, but you think, I don't know if that really applies to me. Like maybe it's just for, and so what's happening there, if that's your mindset, or if that's how you hear that and, reply, and respond to that, is you're placing a limit on his capacity to love, and you believe that his love is, so, is, is scarce enough to where he's somehow going to ration it only to those that he judges as, as, as the most deserving. Okay, hear me, hear me say um, really no on all fronts of that, okay? There's, there's an abundance of God's love. He freely gives it to the whole world. He, God loves the world. And he sent his son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life, right? He's giving. He loves that much. Also, none of us deserve God's love because we've sinned against him time and time and time again. Yet God loves us anyways, right? We are the griping Israelites in the desert. They didn't deserve the man and the quail, yet God still acted. He still shows up. He still provides for them. Why? Because he's a good, loving, and compassionate father. But in the way that he gave the manna, and the way that he gave the quail, he also gave instructions for how to receive everything out of that blessing, for how to receive everything out of that love that God poured out. And such it is with the gospel. Christ pours this out. He makes a way for our forgiveness to happen, but he also gives instructions. We're to come in him in faith. We're to come in him and trust and believe that what he's done was on our behalf. And when we respond with our faith and, and see the love that, is, that he's given, it leads us to confess of our sin, 
uh, to trust in him, to turn away from our sin, to turn towards righteousness and holiness. And when we do these things, we discover more and more and more of the great love and and the grace that he's given and the compassion that he has poured out. And so it's just so many times we can think um, that it's limited to where it's, it's not for us, that God's not doing this for us, and yet God is still there showing, no, this is for you. I, I want you to trust in it. I want you to obey it. I want you to respond and to act on it. Still, maybe you're here this morning and, and you've responded to God's love in your life and, and you, you've trusted in his grace. You know that his forgiveness is for you. You know that you've been adopted in the family of God like you are sure of that. But so often we can make, we can let shame and regret over mistakes, regret over decisions and actions that we've taken really since even after we've come to know Christ, we can let our shame and mistakes over those make us feel as though somehow we're going to wake up in the morning and God's love is going to be scarce for us. We make it feel as though we might wake up and it not be there. Or, or, or maybe, maybe it's, it's not doubting his love so much in that regards as or you know that God's called you to do something, whether it's take a step of faith, invite someone to church or share the gospel or start the job or stop the job or pursue the degree or whatever. You feel as though God's calling you to take that step of faith, to step out in boldness. But there's this thought of, I, I, I don't know if, if when I do that, if he's going to carry me through. I don't know if he's going to provide. I don't know if he's going to guide my steps in, in, in this way. And so it once again, begin to doubt his love and kindness in that, believe that it's going to be limited, believe that it's going to be scarce, and that can lead you, instead of stepping out in faith and boldness, to shrink back in insecurity and passivity. Now, in both situations, both of those situations, I, I, I think the Christian would have the head knowledge, no, his love is there for me, right? We, we have that head, that head knowledge that there's this daily provision of grace, like we have that theology, but I think what happens so often is we feel our, our own limited capacity for a love and grace and mercy because we see how um, broken our efforts are in loving other people. And then we can project that onto God and then suddenly our soul is plagued once again by the pressures and burdens of scarcity, feeling as though there's a limit to that love and grace and kindness and compassion. I, th- I think this is one of the things that is, uh, could come under the umbrella of what's happening when the Apostle James writes in James 1, 23 through 24. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. Right? God's word shows us that we are loved. It shows us that his grace is for us. It shows us what we are called to do and how we are to act in response to that grace. Yet so often what happens is we walk away from God's word that reminds us of these truths and we completely forget what God has done on our behalf. We completely forget how he has loved us and how he's expressed that grace and how he's expressed that mercy to us daily. And when we lose sight of these things, it's easy for us to fall in the situation of the Israelites griping against the Lord and wondering, what have you done for me lately? We, we lose sight of what God has done and, and, and we let this, what have you done for me lately type of mindset creep in. It's doubting the daily love and provision of God the Father. And when those doubts creep in, um, the gripes come out, right? And, it's, and, and, and you can just start to feel that soul maybe turning a little toxic, maybe turning a little bitter. Now let me say this. There's, there's a difference, and I hope you've heard it over the past, really, months at Grace City. There's a difference between griping and the spiritual practice of lament. Okay, the spiritual practice of lament, putting our grief and our anguish, is something that we give to the Lord. And we trust Him with it. And we can, we can in, in no polished up terms, we can put our, our, our 
cries and our anguish before the Lord, but we're trusting him with it. And, and I think that spiritual practice of lament can actually take us deeper into faith, even, and it might take weeks, months, years for that to happen, but it's a, it's a healthy practice that we, ski, that we see in Scripture. Griping is, is, is more so, it's really gossip about God. It's gossip about a perceived failure of God that we don't give to him, but we gripe to other people about. And so we're talking to other people about how we've seen God not, or how we think we've seen God not work, God not move, God's not doing this. And so we say it to those around us, and we're gossiping about God. And that you see that in Exodus 16. Right? And Moses and Aaron are like, look, you thought you were giving that to me? Like, you were grumbling against the Lord. You were griping to the Lord. And so that, that, I think that happens there, is, is when, we, when we gripe, it's, it leads to that toxicness. When we lament, it can lead to a place of faith. In fact, uh, one of the Old Testament books, Lamentations, is a, is a book that the prophet Jeremiah writes. It's one poem after another where he's expressing, expressing his grief and anguish because Jerusalem has fallen to the Babylonians. They've fallen to the Babylonians because um, they've sinned against the Lord and they didn't repent when God told them to repent and they stayed in their sin. And so God allows a time of discipline and correction to be brought on, even if it's by the Babylonians. And so if the, maybe there was ever a point in time for the people of Israel to think, okay, God's love is scarce. <laughs> that, that, you know, maybe to, to think, okay, I'm justified in expressing my, my gripes and my complaints. Maybe that would be the time, but that's not Jeremiah's response. You know, Jeremiah writes poem after poem where he's expressing the grief and anguish for Jerusalem's destruction, but he also acknowledges their sin. And, and rebellion against the Lord. But yet what you also see in that book is, is there's a, a transition. It goes from words of lament to words of repentance. And what brings about that turn is even in the midst of his despair, even in the midst of his heartache, Jeremiah was still able to point and see and look and show how the Lord was faithful, how he was still good, how he was still compassionate, how he had not completely abandoned his people. And recounting and remembering God's ongoing mercy and goodness to them leads those poems of lament to transition into calls for repentance. And one of the verses, and I would say you're familiar with this verse, whether you know the reference or not, is, is one that really marks the change. It's Lamentations 3, 22 through 23. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Some of your translations might say his mercy never fails. His mercies are new every morning. Just like the manna, just like the quail, the mercy, the compassion, the grace of the Lord is new every morning. A daily provision of grace from the bread of heaven. Now look, if I've lost you at some point over the past 20 minutes, come back in on me on this. Because I've kept it... Um, I don't know if vague is the word, intangible. I've kept it up here for like the past 20 minutes, right? Man and quail in the wilderness, Jesus, bread of life, Jeremiah the prophet, compassions, mercies are new every morning, right? So we've seen kind of the same thing. Man and quail, seeing the mercies, the daily provision of grace. Would Jesus come to me? You'll never go hungry. You'll never be thirsty. Jeremiah the prophet, uh, mercies, compassion, new every morning. So we've seen this multiple times in the text. There's probably countless others where we see this truth. And so the question that I have for you, and I need you to do work with this. I can't answer this for you. But the question that I have is how different, how different would your life be or how differently would you approach life and faith if you believed genuinely that every morning God's compassion, 
His mercy and his grace was there as if it was new for you all over again. How differently would your life be? I, and I think Jeremiah helps with this in the first part of verse 22 when he says, because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. And that's a, a, a great description. We are not consumed because here's the deal. Like you and I, we wake up and every single day we are bombarded and assaulted with messages of false teachings that speak to how much we have to earn whatever love is given. We have to earn whatever kindness or compassion might be given to us. That we have to earn that. And, and we better work hard because we're not accomplished enough. We're not talented enough. We're not athletic enough. We're not esteemed enough to get the school, to get the job, to get the spouse, to have the influence, to have the money. And so to, to get all those things... You have to buy this, act like this, get this training or, or have, this, have this many followers or have this type of people following you, praising. And only then might you say that, we're, you know, I've lo- that I'm loved or that I have this much pouring in. And see, when we give ourselves over to those messages, right, or when we give ourselves over to that narrative, we lose ourselves and get consumed by the values of a society that can't make sense of itself. And so when we forget about the daily provision of compassion and mercy that the Lord freely gives, desires for us to know, desires for us to accept and trust in and act on. When we forget that, we don't have a defense against all that comes against us in this world on a daily basis. And so what happens is every single morning, you're going to get up and you're going to start from a place of scarcity. The tank is going to be empty. I got to earn it today. I got to prove it today. I got to steal it for myself today. We start from a place of scarcity and it fuels greed, jealousy, pettiness, bitterness, abuses of power, all of which are against the ways God created us to live. Instead, instead, when we are mindful of the daily provision of grace, compassion, mercy, kindness that the Lord bestows onto us and how much we are loved, then you start your day from a place of generosity. You start your day from a place where the tank is full and you have a place of confidence, a place of assurance. It fights against the what have you done for me lately type of mentality because every single day we behold the glory of the Lord's provision of grace into our lives. I think it moves us outward, away from a selfish focus and towards an outward focus. Okay, God, how then can I be a channel of that blessing into other people's lives? And I'm telling you, when we forget this truth, we forget our reflection in the mirror, right? When we forget this truth, it's not long until our souls run on empty. It's not long until we believe that we are starved, longing for something to quench the desires of our soul. No, when we remember, when we remember, when we remember God's mercies are new every morning, when we routinely depend upon this truth, then we experience the words of Jesus that when we come to him, our souls will never hunger, we will never be thirsty. Every day becomes an occasion to remember and behold the glory of God's love and then act obedience, confidence, and boldness that his way of the kingdom is right and true. And so what happens, and this is, this is the turn, man, this is so cool to me, you can not, whatever, but what happens is when we believe in this and act in this way, then now your life, as you go into your work, as you go into your class, as you go into your family and your community, now you become, and again, not because of anything in you, not because of you, but because of Christ in you. What happens when we remember this, this daily grace, your life becomes a never-ending source of goodness 
and love into a world that falsely believes they are in short supply. Become people of faith that say this is not the way it is to be. We call them the hope, the grace, the love that God desires to give and call people to. It's a way for all of us, all of us, to experience the love of Christ ourselves and join in his eternal redeeming work.